welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. So he is the wisest man on the planet. People literally coming to him from around the world to just bask in his wisdom. He has an annual income of around 25 tons of gold. He took it in gold because Bitcoin, Bitcoin is way too volatile. <laughs> but with all the wisdom and power and wealth, apparently, King Solomon had a weakness. 1 Kings 11.1 1, uh, starts off by, by saying that King Solomon loved many foreign women. Yeah, I'd say. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, we hear of guys that have more than one, one wife. I mean, polygamy was pretty common back in those days. It's actually almost a fact of life. King David, for example, Solomon's father, had seven wives. Which, I mean, seven wives. That would be a lot. The rabbinic tradition of the day uh, figured that, you know, for a king, that the king, because he's the king, he could have uh, 18 wives, which is an insane amount. 700. I mean, this is more than just, hey, I've got a lot of money. I can afford them. This is more than, hey, you know, you need to make treaties with other nations, so I have to marry their daughters just to keep the peace. You know those days when you sit down on the couch and you open a package of Oreos and you tell yourself, just going to eat a couple and then before you know it, like the whole package is gone. Not that I would ever equate wives with Oreos. But you kind of get the idea that Solomon would. Yeah, I think it's safe to say here, 700 wives. Dude, you have a problem. <laughs> oh, and by the way, apparently even that wasn't enough because he had 300 concubines on the side, more than a problem, Solomon has an obsession. And we know that, you know, at this point in First Kings, Solomon's story is about to take a turn to the worst. Because right from the beginning of the passage, there is this word, however. You see, the, first, the author of First Kings has been telling us all the ways in which Really, Solomon has been living the dream here, right? I mean, he's told us about his wisdom, about his justice, his incredible connection with God, how he's built the temple and all the glory of it. Queen of Sheba comes to visit him. Chapter 10, right before this passage, is all it like runs down how much money Solomon has. So far in the story of 1 King, Solomon is killing it here. Then comes, however. 
and you know something is going to go wrong. I think it's fascinating that, the, that what goes wrong in Solomon's life here is described in terms of Solomon loving many women. The old 1984 NIV translates it as holding fast to them in love. I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Aren't we supposed to be loving one another? What could possibly be wrong about loving too many people? Loving them too much? Some of us might be used to the uh, Greek words in the Bible that are translated as love. You know, words like agape and phileo and uh, eros. That's Even though that's not in the Bible, it's another Greek ancient Greek word for, for, for love. And each of these have a very distinct meaning. So when uh, we can kind of get a sense as, of, as to what kind of love is being referred to when, when we see these Greek words being translated uh, as love. But that is not necessarily the case with the Hebrew word that is translated as love in this passage. The Hebrew word here is achab. And again, that's my pronunciation. I do not claim to know how to speak Hebrew, but it actually has a really wide range of meanings. In the Old Testament, this word is used of the love that God has for people. It is also used to describe the love that uh, people should have for God. It's used to describe that the love that family members might have for one another. It's used for the love that people might have for food or things. It's also used to describe the healthy, pure, romantic love between a man and a woman. It's also used to describe the disordered, violent lust that might exist between a man and a woman. Which, when you think about it, that really is kind of how love is, isn't it? I mean, there's a very fine line between pure, selfless sacrificial love and self-centered lustful love and when and when love becomes a virtue and when love is a sin it's not marked out with like this border crossing and a gate with you know those spiky things that they put in the pavement so that if you're driving the wrong direction you drive you know it like tears your tires apart it's not like that which is why the idea of free love and just seeing where love takes you and just letting love be your... It's, you know, that's a scary proposition. Not just for an individual. Not just for a couple. But for society as a whole. Which was why love always comes with guidelines. Warning signs along the road that tell us when we're entering into dangerous ground. For the Israelites, one of those guidelines that God had given them was to not intermarry with the nations that surrounded them. You see, the nations around them worshipped other gods. And this is, this is more than just a religious thing. See, the worship of these gods included Detestable, destructive, vile practices such as temple prostitution and child sacrifice. 
and creating allegiances with people who were committed to these kinds of practices would undoubtedly have negative effects on your life or if you were the king, it would have horrendous effects on the nation. It's a tale as old as time. Obsession turns to disobedience, and disobedience results in turning away from God, which ultimately, verse 4, tells us that as time went by, Solomon's wives turned his heart from God. And I think this is where the rest of us can begin to identify with Solomon. I mean, probably none of us are in danger of marrying 700 different spouses. But becoming obsessed with desire? We may not be tempted to marry 700 people, but we might be tempted to fantasize about 700 people. We are a culture that is obsessed with romance and sex. All you need to do is look at the stories that we tell, the images that we use to sell products, the way our society is completely constructed around romantic encounters and relationships. Our identity is wrapped up into our relationship status, who we are with, who we are thinking of being with, who we are hooking up with in the meantime. Maybe the fact that we invented a holiday to celebrate Romance and love, which is tomorrow, by the way, just in case you need to run out and do anything. Just tell us how big of a deal this is in our culture. And this obsession at every turn tempts us to step out of God's wisdom for healthy love and into destructive and disordered desires. Solomon had an unhealthy obsession a disordered desire. It derailed his commitment to God's law. It derailed his commitment to God. And ultimately, it derailed the future of Israel and led the nation of Israel down a path of idolatry that they would never recover from. Happy Valentine's Day message to you all. And it would be very tempting to read this passage and say, See, women, women, they're a threat. And in fact, it is something that has been said a lot down through the centuries. All throughout history, all around the world, in cultures both urban and tribal, women have been regarded as dangerous. That when men go off the rails in their obsession over women... Because of women. Women made them do it. This can be seen in the restrictions that have been placed on the freedom of of movement for women. How they should, how they should not dress. Where they can go. How they can conduct themselves around men. And yes, sadly, this is not just something that has happened out in the world. But it's also happened here at church. Women have often been viewed as temptations in and of themselves. In some tradition, it is viewed as an act of holiness for men to avoid marriage or even contact, even looking at women. And all this has caused great harm. It's 
caused great harm to women, both in that it has limited their freedom in the world, but also has burdened women with the sins of men, and has damaged the way many women see themselves all around the world, possibly even maybe some of you sitting here. And the whole premise of this is this idea that men and women cannot be around each other without being tempted to pursue illicit passions and desires. And that is just, it's simply unnatural. And so the only way to, for men to avoid sin and temptation, well, it must be to avoid women. But this is not at all the way Jesus lived. It's not at all the way Jesus behaved. Jesus, who was fully human, he was fully a man, was perfectly comfortable interacting with women. Even women with reputations. And not fall into sin. Not fall into disordered desire, lust with them. He was able to love women without lusting after them. You see, as Jesus shows us, we are not at the mercy of our attractions to others. This is true of men and women. There is no urge or attraction to which we are compelled to surrender. The world would say there's nothing you can do. If you're attracted to someone, it is criminal to hold yourself back. It's a matter of justice. You have the right to be happy. As if Pursuing our obsessions has ever been a reliable path to happiness. And the consequences of our obsessions are all around us. But at the end of the day, the fault of our disordered desire doesn't lie with other people. It is our own holding fast in love that causes the problem. Of course, this has caused some throughout church history even to take a step further and to say, see, sex, sex must be the problem, not just women. Many throughout the history of Christianity decided the only way to avoid sin is to demonize sex. Sex is of the flesh. It is a carnal appetite, so it must be bad. The way to holiness is through avoiding sex at all costs. But of course, that's not true either. Sex isn't bad. It was created by God as part of God's good creation, his good plan for humanity. God didn't create sex as simply a necessary evil to ensure the propagation of the species. It's not simply a mechanical exercise based on biological impulses. It is a good and beautiful expression of love by which a husband and a wife become one flesh among the many writings of Solomon that are included in the Bible is the romantic, some might even say erotic, poem known as the Song of Solomon. It's a book that actually throughout history, uh, a lot of people in the church have tried to get, like, delete it from the Bible. They've forbidden teenagers from reading it. Because it's about sex! But this book in the Bible, it unapologetically describes the love that a man and a woman share, their desire for one another. It goes on and on and on about everything that they admire about each other. And I'll just, spoiler alert here, it's not each other's personalities. 
And although the disordered desires of people have misused and abused and given sex a bad name, that doesn't change the fact that it is God's beautiful, good gift to humanity. We just have to keep it in the correct perspective. Some biblical commentators and preachers actually have have made the opposite error with the Song of Solomon. Instead of arguing that it shouldn't be in the Bible, they make it the central text of the scriptures. For some, it's their favorite book to preach from because, let's face it, sex sells, even inside the church. Which is, of course, the same mistake, but in the opposite direction. Song of Solomon is, in fact, a divinely inspired book of the Bible, centers around the the healthy physical desire between a man and a woman in love, in Ahab. But it's a book that is seven chapters long. There's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. So Song of Solomon comprises 0.6% of the Bible. You should keep that in perspective. Sex is a beautiful aspect of the marriage relationship, but it is not the only aspect of the marriage relationship. I mean, let's face it. Eventually, you've got to go to work. You've got to deal with the kids. There's laundry and dishes and bills and futures and past to deal with. Sort them out. There's sickness and health. Rich times and poor times. There is better. And yeah, there is worse. And all of this is what is wrapped up in what it means for a husband and a wife to love. To love one another. You see, sometimes we look at the obsessions that Solomon had, the obsessions that we have, and it just sounds so easy to demonize and blame some force outside of us, outside of me. Women are cunning, can't be trusted. Sex, bad, must be avoided. Avoid them both. Life will go fine. But as tempting as it is to establish these rules, they just don't work to solve the problem. Apostle Paul points this out in Colossians 2.23. He says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. With their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You see, just saying, bad, stay away, it doesn't work. Never has. Not just for you. It hasn't worked for anybody. The truth is that healthy relationships between men and women will never be established on the basis of rules and regulations. They require wisdom. Love requires wisdom. Marriage requires applying knowledge to do the right thing at the right time in the right ways. Love between a man and a woman, it requires wisdom. Which, of course, is something that Solomon had written extensively on. 
For those of you reading through Proverbs over the last month, the warnings to avoid destructive sexual attachments are all over the place. Warnings which Solomon himself appears to have ignored. Now, I guess, admittedly, most of the warnings in Proverbs are against committing adultery, which may be Solomon's logic was, well, I'm not committing adultery, I just marry them all. So maybe technically he hadn't committed adultery. But nevertheless, the love that he held for these women led him away from God and ultimately shipwrecked a nation. In the end, Solomon's failure in love, it was a failure of wisdom. So if the wisest man in history couldn't figure out love, what hope is there for you and me? The answer, of course, is Jesus. Shocker, right? But it's true. The marriage relationship is intimately connected to Jesus. So much so that in some Christian traditions, marriage is actually considered a sacrament because of the divine reality that it represents. Listen to the words of Paul as he describes what marriage should be in Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed it and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. See, marriage, according to Paul... It's all about Jesus. He is the model for how it should work. And when marriage works well, it it is a beacon that points back to him. How different this picture is from the power struggle that characterizes the relationship between men and women in our culture and throughout history, frankly. You don't see a dynamic here where one of them is trying to manipulate the other into doing what they want into worshiping whatever God the other might happen to be into in the moment. You don't see one spouse here using the other for their own pleasure or their own satisfaction. The picture of marriage is the picture of a husband and a wife giving themselves up for the good, for the honor of the other. You see, the picture of two individuals becoming as one flesh, one body so intimately connected to one another that you can hardly tell them apart. Not because one has consumed the other and left him or her soulless with no voice, with no identity of their own. 
but because they're so intertwined, so heaven-bent on securing the good for one another. Husbands, do you want to know how to love your wives? Look at Jesus. Wives, do you want to know how to love your husbands? Look at Jesus. He is the perfect picture of the hab, of love. He is a love that is patient, kind, that does not envy, that does not boast, that is not proud. It keeps, oops, sorry, I skipped one. A love that does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, it is not proud, is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. A love that does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus is the picture of a love that always protects, that always trusts, that always hopes, that always perseveres. He is a love that never fails. Now this, of course, is not to say that love between a man and a woman is easy, or that it's simple, or that it's straightforward. It is not. At least, I haven't found it. Proverbs 30, uh, verse 18 and 19 says this. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. That sounds about right. The funny thing about this proverb, by the way, is one of the one it's one of the proverbs that Solomon didn't write. The reality of love is a profound mystery, as Paul says. Which, I mean, let's be honest. That's what makes it fun. And that is what our marriages and relationships can be when we learn to love like Jesus loves. A delightful lifetime of dying to ourselves for the sake of our spouse and doing it all for the glory of God. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for paving the way. We thank you for being the example and for being the presence and for being the strength that empowers us to love each other well. We confess our obsessions. We confess the temptations associated with them. We confess that we have time at times given in. And we have not loved the people that you've put in our life well.
But we trust not in our own righteousness. We trust not in our own perfection. We trust not in our own strength of character, but we trust in yours. And in the promise that because of your love for us that you will not leave us in the prison of our obsessions, of our disordered desires. But we actually believe in you to save us. Because of your great love for us.